0: you can find them at megavoice.com or you'll find a link in the show notes and I would encourage you to just check that out and see if maybe that's a fit for your giving. There's no compensation here or anything like that. I just wanted to highlight them. And with that, I'll get you back into the regular program. Hey everyone, this is Jim Baker from Doing Ministry Well and you're listening to Engaging Missions.
1: Welcome to the Engaging Mission show with Brian Ensminger. We are bringing missions home. Each week, we hear from missionaries, ministry leaders, disciple-makers, and church planters as they share about God's work in their lives and ministries. Like us, they are ordinary people who serve an extraordinary God. Ladies and gentlemen, here's your host, Brian Ensminger.
0: Greetings, World Changers. I'm your host, Brian Ensminger, and this is the Engaging Missions Show. Today we have a special treat. Our guest is Tony Hedrick, a bivocational artist and businessman. In addition to art and business, he's served as an evangelist, a missionary, church planter, a pastor... A chaplain to the Toronto Blue Jays, a Bible college professor, and a missionary himself. He was born into a missionary family ministering to Native Americans and came to faith in Canada about age 30. Then in 2002, he founded Adventive, or I'm sorry, Adventive Cross-Cultural Initiatives and has missionaries throughout the world. He's a wise, strategic man who walks in integrity, and I'm told that he is a great storyteller. So I think that we're in for a special treat today. Tony, welcome to the show.
2: Great to be here, Brian.
0: So, Tony, we know a little bit about you. I've given kind of the broad picture of your life in like 30 seconds. Would you yeah. mind filling in a little bit of the gaps? Maybe tell us a little bit about your family.
2: Well, my immediate family is my wife, Jeannie. We'll celebrate our 50th year this year. And then we have four married children. The oldest is adopted. He's a Native American. He's a, a Soto Indian. We adopted him in uh, Canada. He was born in Winnipeg, Manitoba. And he has two children married to a great gal up in Thunder Bay, Ontario. And uh, now his oldest boys just gotten married, so we're expecting one of these days, we hope, if they do things right, great-grandchildren. <laughs> and then we've got a, a daughter and son-in-law in Minneapolis and a son and a daughter-in-law in Minneapolis. And then we have a, a family down here, Amy and John live near us, and they've got three boys. So all together we have ten grandchildren. Wow. We, have, uh, we have five of them are in minneapolis and then we have two in canada and we have the other three down here in south carolina so we have been blessed by a really great family uh uh actually uh john and amy haley which live near us they're now the directors of our mission and uh john had worked for billy graham before as a lawyer and now he's leading the mission so we're really blessed with a great family
0: that's amazing. You you mentioned I think just about fifty years in marriage. That doesn't happen by accident. What kinds of things did you guys did you do to keep your marriage alive and keep it together?
2: Oh my goodness! <laughs> you know we're gonna you know how all these things you go to <laughs> they're kind of fun to go to, but you know like uh, love and respect conferences, and I, I think we want to write a write a book on how to stay together when you're totally wired different. I mean you know uh you couldn't find two people more different i'm an artist as as i mentioned to you before the interview and my wife is an editor so she thinks she's very rational and i'm very big picture and so we haven't had a lot of things in common except you know we like certain things we like going out and eating and we like our kids and our family but i like to travel she doesn't i think you just have to (laughs) you just have to really work at it you have to really i i really sense that for us, at least, our marriage was, uh, and she agreed, even before we were Christians. We thought that there was some divine plan. So we don't really see our marriage as uh, something that has to be always romantically inclined. We are, we are joined together by God. We are uh, joined together for purpose. Uh, we are wired different for purpose. We have great strengths that we rely on from one another. And we see our, our differences as being a, a real um, encouragement. To the success of our marriage uh, I, I once found out when I was about 28, 29 years old that if I handled the finances we were always, I never I never had a check that uh, didn't bounce so I gave the finances to her <laughs> that's the way we've done things and I think you just have to see that differences are strengths and we have pooled our resources and uh, we love each other and we have a great marriage and we've been together uh, a long time as I said, 50 years this year and we're going to celebrate that uh, by going to Israel. That's uh, our big trip.
0: Oh, that so. sounds great. So one of the things that stood out to me uh, from the materials that you sent was that you grew up in a missionary home, but you actually came to faith at about age 30. As, as a parent of two small children, that raises really two questions for me. One would be, why so late in life? And the other one is, what actually then led you to faith?
2: Well, I think, you know, uh, Brian, um, I, my parents both got converted uh, later in life. Uh, they were on second marriages, actually. My dad had one arm, and my mother was deaf. My mother was a beautician, and my dad, he uh, sold institutional foods in Kansas and Oklahoma. And when they found, when my dad found the Lord, my mother was still an unbeliever. It was about six weeks later, she came to faith, and they just threw their lot in with Christ. And I grew up going from town to town. I think my dad started about 10 churches. He worked with Native Americans in Wichita, Kansas. And so the longest time I ever stayed anywhere was in Wichita when we had a church of 28 different tribes. So all of my playmates were all Native people. And whenever our house, uh, whenever missionaries came to visit a church or our church, they would come and stay with us. So I always heard these missionaries as they came through. They've been to China, they've been. Mm -hmm maybe it was South America or Africa, and they would come through. I was fascinated by these people. I just, I, even though I studied fine arts and did a master's degree, uh, I, I ended up, had a business in advertising, always in my heart, I always thought the most interesting thing were, were people who wore different kinds of hats and ate different kinds of food and spoke different kinds of languages. So I think while I wasn't exactly devoted to the Lord until I was 30, I had the seed sown in my heart, not only toward the Lord, but toward, toward missions, toward reaching the nations. It was just such a compelling thing for me to have native friends, Indians of every background, Creeks, Choctaws, Seminoles, Blackfoot, Kiowa. I, I know the tribes, I'll tell you. <laughs> and uh, so I really believe the key is that while I made a profession of faith when I was about six or seven years old and about 14 I fell away from the Lord, and I got involved, became kind of involved in the Vietnam Day Committee and Congress of Racial Equality, and, and I had a, a history of uh, leaving the country, going to Canada, and all of those things. I did all of this stuff. But when I was 30 years old, the Lord captured me in a little house in Merrickville, Ontario. And I think the thing is this, is that if, if Christians want to impact their children for the gospel, they've got to live it out. I could escape the gospel. I could I could escape the words of the gospel. I couldn't escape what I saw in the gospel.
0: Mm.
2: I saw action. I saw here are these people who my dad having one arm, uh, my mother being deaf, they were soul winners. They were sacrificial. They didn't just talk about it. They didn't just go to church on Sunday. They threw their lot in with Christ. And so when I got 30, I became empty. I became uh, all I was successful, I said, "Is this all there is to life?" And then my heart went back to my roots. I said, "I want something that has real meaning. I want something that has real content to life." And I began to seek the Lord, and the Lord began to seek me. If you're an Armenian or Calvinist, sort that out <laughs> any way you like. Whatever the thing, where I ended up in a little house in Merrickville, Ontario, on November ninth, nineteen seventy-five, at eleven forty-five in the morning, with my wife and three children, and the Lord met me there. And I was 30 years old, and it, its uh, I never look back. This is my 40th year of ministry, and uh, I could not tell you where the Lord's taken me completely. Uh, but it is a very exciting—it's not just doctrine. It's life to be led. The Christian faith is life to be led. And I'm afraid too many Christians, and I'm surrounded in Christian culture here. This is why I like to be a missionary. I like to go where they've never heard. But I think we can become so saturated by the gospel, we can live out our lives without ever letting our children know that this is a life worth leading. We can go to church, we can give our tithe, but I really think the people who are going to impact their children are going to be the people who uh, most uh, signal to them that it's not just uh, something you do on Sunday, but it's a whole way of life. And that's what I had. My parents just really demonstrated it, and I couldn't. I couldn't run from it. I saw. I saw native people converted in our. I tell you. Can I tell you a story here? Please I, do. Yeah. I was six years old when I. This is very impactful. When I was six years old. Uh, we moved to uh, Mound Ridge, uh, uh, Kansas, and our house floated away in the flood there. They had a huge flood. The Cottonwood River overflowed. So we moved down to Hillsboro, Kansas, and I slept in a, a bay window in the, in the little house my parents rented. And my dad would go preach on the streets in Wichita, and uh, he would preach in front of the beer joint down on uh, Douglas Street. And he brought home this Indian guy named Tom Harjo, and Tom Harjo woke up in bed with me. I I ended up being nearly smothered by this great big Cherokee Indian, and he must have weighed 240 pounds. And uh, he used to call me his bed buddy. He came to church that Sunday morning with just me, my brother, my mom, and my dad, and him. And uh, it was the worst church service you can't imagine, but he found Jesus. Mm. And Tom Harjo then began to share with his friends. And then my dad, he came to my dad and he says, Harry, he says, we have some Indians. <laughs> you know how the Indian people talk. We have some Indian. They meet down in, uh, I think it was Derby, Kansas, in a house. Would you come and speak to them?" He went in and that's how that Indian church was born, out of that living room set. So. Uh, Just we just saw these kinds of things all the time. We just saw these alcoholics coming into the house that found Jesus. And we always had our house full of people. And so that was the impressive thing about the gospel in my family. It was always being shared and preached.
0: One of the things that you had mentioned in some of the the info that you sent was also about a need for apologetics, you know in terms of reaching people. and there, there in my mind, there's a tension between apologetics and also experiencing God. But I suspect that's not reality. So can you help maybe tie well, that together for me?
2: Yeah, I, I, let me just say, Brian, I don't when I say apologetics, i I don't trust. I don't put my confidence in answering people's questions. We hmm. know we, we know it's the work of the spirit. But I really think we're sometimes, especially American Christians who grow up in the Bible belt, that is, anywhere in the Southland or Central, Mid-America. We're not in in New England. We're not in the northwest corner of the United States. Uh, It's a little different there. Mm -hmm. And so I think we grow up with the four spiritual laws, evangelism explosion, the plan of salvation, John 3.16, and we tend to go into a formula mode. Mm -hmm. Now, I grew up with good old fashioned gospel preaching and almost everybody, if you met them, they would know if I started to say, for God so loved the world, they can finish it. Or if I said, the Lord is my shepherd, they can finish it. Mm -hmm. But when I went to Canada and I was up there, I realized they couldn't finish any of that. They had no Christian background. They had no Christian history. So I said, well, what are we going to do? Because the questions weren't mm-hmm. the questions we were answering in mid-America. They weren't the questions we were asking in the South. They were different kinds of questions. They were C.S. Lewis questions. They were Ravi Zacharias questions. Do you understand what I mean? Yes. And so in order to reach those people, I had to really study to show myself approved a workman. So I began to read some of these thinkers. And when those questions came up, those objections to Christianity, I could say, oh, why do you think that? let's talk about that a little more and begin to ask them questions about why they believed as they did and where their information came from and how they knew their information was reliable. So I was able to challenge them on such things as naturalism and and issues like that and on their understanding of the authority of Scripture. For instance, maybe in South Carolina I can walk up to people and say, the Bible says, and it means something. Mm -hmm. I can tell you in Ontario, Canada, if you say the Bible says, it doesn't mean a thing. If you say it in England or you say it in France, particularly in France or Spain or Portugal or Holland or Norway, the Bible says, who cares? The questions, you've got to start in a different place completely. So I don't believe that uh, answering people's philosophical questions uh, actually brings them to Christ, but it removes some of the barriers so that they can have confidence that when you talk about scripture, they can trust you with it. So you do not win people in Europe the way we won them in the Southland or mid-America in the 1960s. We can't do crusades like you do, used to. People don't respond that way. I'm not saying some people won't. Of course they will. Sure. Where there's great need, there's great response. But most of the people I meet in Canada, in the northwest part of the United States, in New England, Uh, I know I can't do evangelism at Harvard University the way I can do it at uh, maybe at uh, Oklahoma University. I know that. So we've got to be equipped better for those kinds of challenges. Because people just don't take us uh, as being credible. Uh, even what we have to say, that it's not even in the marketplace of ideas. So I'm really challenging, uh, and, if, and if this broadcast gets out, I want to challenge thinkers, people who've read widely. Give some time to Europe. Go over there. Don't just go for a holiday. Go over. Partner with a church there. Get out on the street. Have an interpreter with you. And then begin to have these conversations with people, because they do make a difference. I've seen quite a few people become Christians because... We finally answered the questions they were asking.
0: Mm, that, that's really powerful. That, on a personal level, I'm still processing that. You know, I've, on some level, I've dealt with that kind of thing because I think about my own faith and I go, okay, well, on what can I base it? I, I realize that I base it on Scripture, but at the same point, my trust in Scripture also comes from a place, and so I have to, I have to address those issues for myself.
2: Exactly.
0: Uh, um, but. I I do kind of come from a Bible family, so it's a lot easier for me to convince myself, right? Sure. Uh, So, yeah, I I really appreciate you sharing that. One of the things I think about in terms of your ministry over the course of about four decades, you must have faced a couple of challenges. Would you mind sharing with us a, a time of one of those challenges?
2: Well... Let me just say, I think the most, you know, some are there, there are some family challenges. There's always financial challenges. There's great decisions about whether to live, leave business, you know, having a very good job that pays very well. And then to throw yourself on the gospel and go from making hundreds, I won't say how much, but quite a bit of money, <laughs> down to $28,000 a year and, and make, doing that by choice. That, those are challenges, you know, uh, going from living very well to having to depend on people to help you to do what you do, and, and you're not that's not the kind of person you are. These are horrible challenges. Ask any missionary who's competent. Ask anybody who, who has a professional background and decides to go into missions and then have to depend upon people's help. <laughs> this is not easy. You, I mean, you know that. Whoever you talk to, Brian, you hear that. Oh, yeah. The hardest thing is to ask people for money and for help. I had one guy say to me he says why should I give you money to go live on the Italian Riviera I want to go live on the Italian Riviera Oh this is a guy who who I've ministered to his family I've helped him but you know uh he just doesn't get it he doesn't he doesn't understand what this is about but that's that's not the biggest thing for me uh I mean, I've dealt in some pretty dark situations, you know, where I've dealt with demonic possession, people who are demonized and having to work in deliverance. That's very challenging, especially yeah. in a culture that doesn't believe in a spiritual world like that. And you're all of a sudden faced by manifestations, and you've never done that before. And you have to say, well, what do I do? And you have to say, well, what did Jesus do? And, you, yeah. you know, you're, you're caught out on a limb. And so those are all challenges, but I think the biggest one that comes to mind is, uh, you know, having a fight with the devil, having having being wakened up at night by a presence in the room that scares you to death. You're a fairly new Christian, you feel God's call on your life, and all of a sudden something comes into the room, and you wake your wife up, and it's the middle of the winter, it's in Canada, it's cold, it's 40 below zero, there's snow everywhere. <laughs> And uh, you punch her in the gut, uh, as you say, A genie, do you sense what I do? Something in the room and being terrified by that and getting angry enough to go outside and just to uh, tell the devil. I, I think maybe some of you have seen the movie War Room. Uh, you know, sometimes you just have to tell him who he is and what he can do and what he can't do and declare. And so you go out and you actually decide to declare yourself against the enemy. Christian life can be pretty simple unless you have a real opponent, unless you see, hey, this is a real battle. And it was a a turning moment for me, a mountaintop moment for me when I finally said, you can't touch my home, you can't touch my family, you can't have any of this. And if you continue to bother me, I will go and buy 500 tracks and I will go to them all in the spirit or not, and I will hand out 500 tracks tomorrow. So you better back off (laughs) having a real conversation with the devil. But I went back in, and I began to pray, and the Lord had began began to use me quite a little bit in evangelism. And I, in those days, we had Jimmy Swaggart, and we had big crusades, and we had Keith Green, and we had all kinds of things going on, a great revival happening. I really felt that God was calling me to a significant evangelistic ministry. But that very night, he said, will you follow me? Will you follow me if there's no remuneration? There's no there's no money (laughs) will you follow me if there's no results no evidence of results and will you follow me if there's no reputation and i didn't know what that meant at the time i i didn't have any idea that i was going to be put out into missions and i wasn't going to have a, a a big church somewhere or write books or be on television or have a have a have a coliseum full of people What he did was, I said yes to that. That's the stupidest thing you can do. I said yes. (laughs) And he sent me to Europe. And he sent me to uh, have church uh, uh, over the mosque. Uh, The mosque was downstairs. Our church was upstairs. It was above a body shop to meet in rooms and houses and and to meet in in parks. And uh, just to take away any sense of the props that Mm. I would normally expect to have as a North American Christian. Now, it's been great. It's been wonderful. And I've met some wonderful people all over the world, and God has raised up some great people. And some of the students I've taught now are in significant ministries in very remote parts of the world and doing great things with God. But at the time that he challenged me with this, I'd only been a Christian about three years, and it freaked me right out. (laughs) And I didn't know what he meant by that. But I think that was the challenge to really, when God says something to you, even if it doesn't seem very promising at the time, you say yes to it, and that's. Uh, I think that was the biggest challenge for me is to say yes to that because that's not the North American way. The North right. American way is you you grow a large church and you have significant ministry, you have a great worship team, and well, listen, I started churches. I've started churches over in Europe where we don't have any any musical instruments i remember one we, the one we had in parma italy we started by clapping our hands we had 17 people in the room and the men had to stand against the wall the room was so small and we didn't have any musical instruments and we had a powerpoint we had a screen but no powerpoint projector so we pulled the screen down wasn't that stupid you still <laughs> pulled the screen down even though we had no projector we we had a uh, synthesizer that someone donated but no one could play it we still put it up in faith. Now that church, that church has about 225 people in it, and they have a worship team made up of Brazilians and South Americans and Italians, and they have 14 people on the platform. But you can't, God just calls us to do crazy things, and that's where I want to be. I don't want to do the normal. Well, that's a speech, but that's (laughs) how I feel.
0: Well, that's great. Uh, We are going to need to go ahead and take a quick break, but we will be back in just a minute to continue this.
1: Take your leadership to the next level. It's time for the Engaging Missions Leadership Moment with Scott McClelland of FX Missions.
3: Hi, it's Scott McClelland with your Leadership Moment. Thanks for listening. Start out with a quote here from a famous believer from many centuries ago. Let all things be loved for the sake of Jesus, but Jesus for his own sake. Those are the words of Thomas Akempis that have continued to ring true down through the many centuries since he lived. Why is that? For one, these words help protect our hearts from idolatry from spending our love and the focus of our lives in ways that devalue us and the object of our love. There's a lot of pursuits in life, many of them valid. Many things that we can offer uh, in service and in meaningful contribution. At the same time, if any of the things in our life began to compete for first place, their real value and their intended value begins to be compromised. God the Father gave us Jesus as Redeemer, Savior, Friend, and also as the focal point of life itself. To make anything or anyone else the focal point of our lives, devalues the us, them, and our life. This understanding can help us comprehend why in life so much depravity and needless loss is all around us. Of course, there's nothing new about vanity, but in our times it is rising higher and higher. We should be aware that vanity intends to pull us away and ensnare us. Now we all have needs. God made us that way. We shouldn't be surprised by it. But in the midst of our needs, we need to realize that the needs themselves and our appetites can drive us to self-destruction. However, if we turn to and reflect on Jesus as the principal need, we'll realize that that is the truth. And in that turning, and our continual turning, will be changed and our appetites will be transformed no matter how far they've fallen. I want to encourage you. Don't let things, people, or opportunities put a false claim on your heart to vie for first place from the Lord. Love all things for Jesus' sake, but Jesus for his own sake. Scott McClellan with your Leadership Moment. Find us at FX Missions. Have a good one.
1: This has been the Engaging Missions Leadership Moment with Scott McClelland of FX Missions. If you have a leadership question, please send it to feedback at engagingmissions.com and visit fxmissions.com to connect with Scott and discover how you could be We are
0: back with Tony Hedrick. He's already started talking a little bit about some of the things that God has done with the ministry in terms of planting churches and things like that. Now we're going to shift our focus a little bit more toward the ministry. So, Tony, would you mind sharing it with us? What is ACCI? What is it that you do?
2: Well, uh, I'm glad you asked that one because we're a little different. We're not exactly... um, I think all of you know out there listening what agencies do. They, They tend to start out with an idea. A man usually starts out with an idea of what needs to be done and then he starts a movement. Other people come and join that man or or that group in terms of fulfilling that purpose. We really don't work that way, Brian. Uh, mm-hmm. ACCI is a cooperative, a missionary cooperative. So we have people doing all kinds of things all over the world. We have we have an Auckland, New Zealand, we have a fitness center, we have businesses mission, we have people working with the homeless. We have people working with uh, teaching uh, Christian roots in Torah. You know, all kinds of people doing all kinds of things, because we thought, sometimes people just don't fit. I never felt like I fit. I didn't fit really with denominational goals or with the goals of Campus for Christ or the goals of of uh, frontiers. I mean, they were all great goals, but I didn't feel I fit fit with those. So uh, when God began to call me, I I began to think, well, there must be other people who feel the way I do, that they have some, God's laid something on their heart, but they have no way to get this done. They have no covering. They have no support agency. So I started all by myself, and uh, now God has uh, led about 80 other people to come and join us in the last 10 years or so, a little more than that. We have about 20 now uh, in Italy alone, but they came all with the same heartbeat. And so we said, okay, we're a missionary cooperative. So we invite people who have a dream to come and join with us. They contract with us. We become partners in ministry. And we are Christ-centered and kingdom, uh, kingdom-conscious and Christ-centered. So we are not out there to build our own thing. We work. Uh, our thing is we try to be not top-down. Most American agencies are. Mm-hmm. Uh, top down we try to be i'm not picking on that but they have something they want to do they want to plant certain kinds of churches or want to work on campuses we're all for that but we felt in europe we needed to do it backwards we need to come and we do it this way all over the world but we started saying let's just go and resource what's there let's go and help the brothers and sisters like the macedonian call let's go get underneath them and just say, if they say to us, Tony, I just don't think I want you to preach this Sunday. We're busy. Why would you clean the toilet? Would you make the coffee? Then we say, that's what we're here for. We try to just help those brothers and sisters who are already doing the work because they're already enculturated. So we go, and as much as we can, Brian, we don't try to create something new. We don't try to lay, raise our banner. We don't try to, uh, you know, draw attention to it. We just say, we're your servants for Christ's sake. And so that's the way the mission was born, and I just simply go uh, as a resource person. I am primarily, I guess my calling is giftings in the area of evangelism, and I think probably people would say, although I'm not a brilliant guy, I don't have stacks of PhDs, but I'm, I'm a teacher. I'm a Bible teacher, so that's just what I do. I go and I help with teaching. I encourage leaders. I teach train leaders. I work with missionaries and pastors on the ground in about 15 countries. My call is to Italy, and that's where God called me. But I've been working in a lot in Norway, surprisingly. Hmm. It's a lot in Portugal and France and Spain. So when I even go to Europe for these long trips that I go on, I'm often only two or three weeks in Italy, and then I'm in Slovenia, or I'm in Romania, or I'm in Croatia. So uh, the Lord has just broadened out what I felt the call would be. But this is primarily what I do. I get to eat a lot of good food in a lot of good places, and sometimes, most of the time, I have to pay for it myself. But nevertheless, (laughs) it's a good time.
0: That's great. You know, one of the things you said uh, about going there and resourcing people that just reminded me of something that a a previous guest, Scott McClelland, who I think you I think you know him. Oh, yeah. Scott's great. Yeah. He had mentioned, you know, the idea of not going in and assuming that, you know, the answer. And I think that speaks exactly to what you're doing. I, I absolutely love that. Uh, one thing that I I remember you had mentioned was the idea that in in missions now, we need to do what you called fishing on the other side of the boat. Can you share yeah. with us what that is and how you're doing that?
2: Well, you know, I think uh, for our listeners, may, they may not be that knowledgeable about missiology and how different cultural groups think. And, uh, uh, you know, I think they probably can't see that Europe is quite different after the Enlightenment uh Uh, Most Europeans are not Christian at all, never have been in many ways. They don't understand what the gospel is to a large degree. Less than 2% of the 712 million Europeans are Christian in in the biblical Great Commission sense. So you're dealing with people who have been influenced by Darwin and Freud and Voltaire and and uh, all of these thinkers, uh, Marx, and uh, so it's a different mind than if you go to, you know, if you go to the Asian world, or you mm-hmm. go to Africa, or you go to South America, you're dealing with people who have a spiritual worldview. They don't have a materialistic worldview. It's a spiritual worldview. It's easier for me to talk to a Muslim than it is to talk to a European. I'd much rather try to talk to a Muslim than to talk to a Frenchman. <laughs> Just the Frenchman is anti-theistic. Most Frenchmen are anti-theistic. They don't even believe there's a God. They think you're they think you're insane if you believe in God. So the challenges are are really difficult. So when we're fishing on the other side of the boat, I think that American missions have gone to Europe over the last 250 years with the idea that they'll do what they do in the Second World War. They'll get their tanks, they'll get their airplanes, they'll get all their firepower, they'll roll in and they'll evangelize a nation or a city or something, or they'll start churches, and that's not happened. It hasn't happened. It's not going to happen. It's going to be slow, hard work. So the Lord showed me that text said, when Jesus came out and he looked at him and said, hey, boys, have you caught anything? And, and Peter answered, we fished all the night long and we caught nothing. Mm-hmm. Jesus, the carpenter, says fish on the other side of the boat. How crazy did that sound to them? Here's a guy who's never fished in a day in his life, says fish on the other side of the boat. Fish on the wrong side of the boat. Do it differently. So the Lord spoke to me about this, that our methodology in Europe has to, has to turn around it has to be bo- uh, b- bottom up. It has to be more like, um, I always say, Riche Guevara read read about uh, the communist revolution in south america and central america you have to win the countryside you have to go in and, and infiltrate and you can't roll over them you have to come up underneath and you have to begin to serve the people and you have to uh, have to see that it's not about forests it's about trees individual trees so you win this person you win that person you bring them together you have groups that are meeting in houses and there's accountability and you just don't do it The American way. You just don't go in and plant. God bless the Southern Baptists; they're doing a great job in a lot of places. But it's not our goal to go plant Southern Baptist American style churches in Europe. They don't fit. We just try to take our model of how church looks, and we try to do it there. We've got to go instead, as you pointed at pointed out before the break. We've got to partner with the people who understand the psyche. Let me give you a quick illustration. In <laughs> Slovenia, I like to stand up and preach. I'm an American. I grew up in the South. I like to preach. And <laughs> somebody said the Slovenes aren't they can't be reached that way. Slovenes were under communist dictatorship. They were under they were in the Yugoslavia and they were in the they didn't join the Warsaw Pact, but they were remember the old Yugoslavia where the uh-huh. communists ran everything. They had the, all of these meetings they had to go to and they had to listen to some guy tell them how to think. They don't want that. You have to meet them through discussion, through dialogue. Do you see the difference? Oh yeah. So we have to be missional. We have to. We have to. Missionaries have to take the gospel. Oh, you're going to like this, Brian. This is fun for me. <laughs> Kentucky Fried Chicken. They almost went out of business, and as an advertising guy, they almost went out of business. They were starting to lose business, and. All of a sudden, they changed all of their advertising. They changed all of their signage. They changed all of their uh, napkins and everything. And it didn't say fried anymore. It said KFC. Mm-hmm. KFC. It's Kentucky Fried Chicken was no longer. Why? Because fried was a bad word. Fried was a horrible word, so they went KFC. So a whole generation of people have grown up without the word fried. But mm-hmm. let me tell you something. The chicken's exactly the same. Right. And so Jesus said the children of this generation are wiser in this generation than the children of light. Business people understand how to change methodologies. We don't get it. We don't change the gospel. It's still about the blood of Jesus. It's still about the Holy Spirit. It's still about supernatural conversion. But we have, to, we have to rewrap it, and that's what missionaries do. And when we say we need to fish on the other side of the boat, if we haven't caught anything in 200 years, 200 years of missionary activity, the church is the same size. It's still stubborn. It's still opinionated. It's still separated. It's still divided. It's still fighting and feuding one group against another. We've got to work toward reconciliation in Europe, and that's why one of the big calls of ACCI is to work toward Christian reconciliation. Not reconciliation with other religious groups, but with Christians to Christians Mm -hmm. They won't talk to one another. Pentecostals won't talk to Baptists. Baptists won't talk to Calvinists. Calvinists won't talk to brethren. So we have created now pockets of resistance where we bring together Agency leaders and pastors of churches and missionaries bringing them all together. And now they're beginning to pray together, share together. One heart, one gospel, one message for the, the people they meet. And that's what we mean by fishing on the other side of the boat. More answer than you asked for.
0: No, that, that was great. As you were sharing, if you... If it... If you wouldn't mind, I'd like to indulge a little bit in a, a selfish question, because um, you, you mentioned reaching the individual, and I have some close friends who have a grown son who's in the U.S., and he's intellectual, but he's, uh, after being raised into the church, he's become opposed to God. So I'm just wondering, are there any strategies that you've found to be effective in reaching the one for the gospel?
2: Well, you know uh, I, the story you're telling me, Brian, could be oh yeah a thousand times over. Graduate from high school, you graduate from God. That's the way it is. Universities, they're not intellectually neutral areas. No, they are proselytizing areas. They are proselytizing people to an anti-theistic worldview. That's just the nature. You send your child to a university, plan to get six, six, six put on their forehead. It's like sending your children to an ashram. You just, you just don't do that. But that's what we do because we've got to have educations. We've got to have degrees. So they go there and they've got professors that are completely trying to, to discredit Christianity by the raise of their eyebrows and by the tone of their voice. We can't, we can't go up against that. But the real problem for young people. Now here's what parents need to understand. It is not intellectual atheism. It's moral atheism. It's almost always rebellion it is almost never intellectual. They don't know enough to be intellectually inclined against the gospel. It's moral rebellion. They want to dismiss God so they can do the stuff that they want to do. It's all about sin. It's not about answers. Give them answers till the cows come home. This is what I think about apologetics. I'll give the answers. But give them answers till the cow comes home, and we should give them answers. It's not going to work until they finally bend their knee to Jesus, and it's going to be have to put down the rebellion. Now, unfortunately, unfortunately, most of these kids who are acting out in this way, who have left the faith of good, godly parents, sometimes they have good reason for it. But most of the time, it's just simply a cover for living an immoral lifestyle. I think what we need to do is love them, pray for them, And I think it's important to expose them to good thinking, to good thinking. Uh, You know, parents are anti-intellectual, particularly evangelical Christians. Do you know that, Brian? A lot of them do. They don't uh... want to read books. They don't want to know anything. They just want to love and worship Jesus. Hmm. A friend of mine, Ray Chiervo, he's an apologist. He was over in Italy doing some lectures on apologetics. And he said, you know, just recently I had a young girl come to me and she said, why do we have to do this? Why do we have to learn this heavy stuff, theology and apologetics and all that? Why can't we just worship and love Jesus? That sounds like a good question, except that he answered back the right answer. Which Jesus do you want to worship and love? Which Jesus? That's why we do apologetics and theology. It's because I believe the church is often, especially the American church, is giving the young people the wrong Jesus we are giving our young people the wrong Jesus. We're giving them the wrong gospel. We're giving them an anti-intellectual, if it makes you feel good. I believe the Christian faith is intellectual. I believe it doesn't just, it isn't just truth. It's true for all of life, every aspect of life. But we segment it. We separate it out. And so I think what we have to do is we have to demonstrate to our young people, especially if you have young children at home, this is true to every part of life. And that doesn't mean being, uh, legalistic and taking your kids out of everything good. Mm-hmm. Let your kids do everything good. Let them develop a, a healthy mind. Don't, don't try to protect them from the germs of life. Let them experience the germs, of life. but let's, let's debrief them. Let's talk intelligently at the table at supper time. It's just, I just think we miss the boat with our kids, especially in Sunday school. Our Sunday school teachers aren't taught how to deal with the struggles that a six-year-old kid, now no, a sixth grader has already left the faith because of what he's been encountering in public school already. They go to church on Sunday, they, they get out of bed and they clean up and they go, but they don't believe anything the teacher's saying because they think they're just stories, they're just fables. We need to get this down to where it's not a fable. It makes intellectual sense to believe what we do. I'm just going to recommend that, you know, the first place we need to start is for young, for parents, is to figure out why they believe the Bible. Is the Bible true or not? If you don't resolve this as parents, don't expect your children to believe the Bible. You have to believe it, and you have to know why you believe it. It's not good enough to believe what you believe anymore. You've got to know why you believe what you believe. seems like
0: that's a title of a book too i can't remember who wrote the, it
2: absolutely book by paul copan i think okay. but i don't want to take it away from don Postursky. but <laughs> it's one of those guys
0: that's great. You know, w- one of the other things, um, b- because you've had so much experience, you've traveled so broadly, living here in the U.S., I've, I've been in the U.S. almost my entire life, except for a couple of short-term trips, and it's really easy to have a very small view of the world, to basically believe that the entire world is like the U.S. What can you share with us about broadening our worldview?
2: Well, I mean, you know, you know what the statistics tell us, don't you? That the American church is on the decline that with all of our buildings and seminaries and worship teams and guitars and amplifiers and uh, programs, we are not leading the world in conversion. Uh, in, uh, you know the statistics on China. You know the statistics on uh, South America. You know the statistics on Central Africa. I mean, you know, did you see recently, of the top 20 conversional nations. The top 20 conversional nations of Lebanon are Muslim. 11 of those (laughs) nations are Muslim. The United States Church is not growing. So the center for Christianity is no longer Wheaton, Illinois. It isn't there, a Grand Rapids, Michigan. That's not where it is. Mm -hmm. It's 600 miles off the coast of Ghana, West Africa. So the church is no longer northern and western. It's southern Mm -hmm. and eastern. 100 million Chinese coming up as believers now. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. The most Christian nation in the world per capita probably is Korea. Of the top largest churches in the world, the largest churches in the world of the top 30, 19 are in South Korea. 19. Not in Dallas. Not in Chicago. (laughs) Korea. 19 of the 30 largest churches. Nairobi has a huge church. Lagos has a huge church. Santiago has a huge church. Uh, San Paulo has an enormous church, 200,000 people. Bogota, 200,000 people. But we've got to come off of our high horse. Yeah, We're no longer the leaders. We've got lots to learn from people who pick up a Bible and they don't have a seminary education. They don't have a PhD. They just have a Bible.
0: You know, I remember somebody sharing maybe 15 or give or take a few years ago um that that the far east was going to kind of replace the US in terms of leadership in in the church and in the body of Christ and at the time my reaction was well what can we do to reverse that? I mean, cuz the US clearly needs to be the winner in all of that. Now I'm thinking maybe I should have considered how I could partner with God.
2: Wow. I think so. You know, you know, some of these stories are not true. You just keep repeating them, and it makes them sound true. (laughs) You know, they, they talked about the bishop who came over from China to speak in churches in America, and he was scheduled to speak in 23 churches. And after a few, I think only a handful, five or six, he asked if he could go home. And they said, why? He said, well, I've been here now for a couple of weeks, and I've come to learn that it's amazing what Americans can do without God. We can, if you're just good, I am I mean, it concerns me that if you're just uh, good at business, you can plant a church. You can build a big church. You don't have to know God, really. People are very, very, um, um, well, naive. Uh, Christians are very naive. If it glitters, they think it's God. I mean, look at television ministries. I mean, I can pick on them all I like, but... A lot of it that people think is God doing something isn't God doing anything at all. It's filling somebody's pockets. We just have the wrong impression. We need to get back to doing things the New Testament way. And I think the reason China and the reason Guatemala and the reason countries in South America are seeing such growth, like 27% of Brazil now are born-again Christians. Mexico is sending out missionaries. uh, America's no longer the largest missionary sending nation in the world. Mm-hmm. I think they just simply say, we're going to do it. We don't have anything else. We don't have anything to, to lean on. We don't have big buildings. We don't have all this stuff. we got to only have God. That's all we've got. And I think that's why they're seeing miracles and we're not. I really do. I, I, can, I can't tell you how many miracles I've seen in, uh, you know, Paul says that he wanted to go where the gospel had not been preached. I I can't tell you the number of miracle things that have happened uh, that happened in Italy where it's just everything, everything, everything is against you. And yet we see miracles. We see people who should never get healed get healed. We see people who should never get saved get saved.
0: Well, with that, Tony, I would like to take uh, one last shift and shift our focus a little bit more toward our listeners. And one thing that really struck me was the idea of... You had mentioned the idea of moving beyond just throwing mush, money at missions to empathizing with the goals of missions. Can you share with us how we, someone who's called into the marketplace, can do that?
2: Oh boy, I'd love that one. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, you know, um, it, it's so easy for us to take up an offering. Um, I, I think, I think that's that buys our conscience off, you know. Mm-hmm. Here's, the, here's what I would say to you, Brian, or I would say to anybody. You've been on a couple of mission trips, right?
0: Yeah, it's been a few years, but Let me explain
2: yeah. what I do. I don't live in Europe. I don't live there. Lots of people that work with us live there, and they're doing great work. But I only go twice a year. And when I go, I go for sometimes the shortest visit would be five weeks. The longest visit would be ten. And in that period of time, I'm in 16 different cities. But let me tell you what I do. I know every church I go to, I built bridges of relationship with them. So I think if we could find people like yourself, and we could find people who are business people and people who are working at jobs and people who have summers off, school teachers and uh, people like firemen and people who have periods of time they can store up their holidays and their vacation time and their sick leave and go for two or three weeks but go to the same place. Over and over again. Well, that's what Scott McClellan does with FX Missions. He goes to the same places. Mm-hmm. My son-in-law, who owns a business, he owns a business that builds churches here in South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia. That's what they do. Ecclesia. He and his his business donate money. Yes, they tithe 10% to World Missions. Their business does. Mm-hmm. Right off the top. But all the people who work in that business go to Guatemala. <laughs> they go twice a year and they take teams with them businesses can do this business leaders can do this churches can do this i i heard of one church down in your neck of the woods actually in georgia okay. who sent out this church that sent out 99 short term teams now i don't know you can do the math on this but i think it's going to be about 2000 bucks a whack 2000 dollars a person to do this 99 people now here's what will happen that's great i'm glad they're going but it really is a holiday because you can't do very much in a culture, right, unless you build something, you know, build a building or fix right. an orphanage or, or something like that or do a feeding program. You can't do very much real, genuine, authentic ministry by going someplace and then the next year picking up and going to another place. It can't happen. But if we can get people, older people, retired people, to commit themselves to the same community, year after year after year, feeding people, loving people, sharing with people, teaching vacation Bible schools, so that when they show up, when I show up to Parma, Italy, when I show up to Ljubljana, Slovenia, when I show up to Costanza, Romania, when I show up to Tonsberg, Norway, when I show up to, uh, uh, I could give you a dozen places, I'm not a stranger. Right. I'm not a stranger. They know who I am. They trust me. I built trust. And so now my ministry opportunities are really, they've just absolutely gone tenfold to what it would be if I just showed up and left and went to another place and all these mission teams running all over the place. I would rather see, it would bless my heart to see some of these youth groups, for instance, save up their money and go on a mission trip. That's great. That's fine. But I would rather sense that people are raising up money to help local missionaries do something or local pastors do something. That would make a huge difference. And I don't want them just to send the money. I would like for them to do what believers in the first century did. They would take a bundle of money and they would go to that city to relieve the struggles of those people, Mm. to help those pastors. Take them out to dinner. Look, if you're a business guy, you and your wife, and you're out there and you're listening to this, and you can find it, I'll give you some names. Go there. Stay in the city for three days. Take them out to dinner, the missionaries. Take the pastors out to dinner. Look after their kids for an afternoon. Let their wife go to a spa. They don't do any of these things. There's so much we can do to equip and to liberate and to bless people who are serving under very difficult circumstances. Almost all of my missionaries, all of my pastors who are working, national pastors, they work at full-time jobs. They pay for the facilities out of their own pocket, and in Italy, they're taxed at 65%. They right. make half of what Americans do for the same job, taxed at 65%, their housing is just as high, food is just as high, and yet, at the same time, they pay for the rent, they pay for the gasoline for their car, because they have no, they're a poor church, they have no means to do anything else. Wow.
0: Tony, we are just about at the time at the end of our time. Do you mind if can we hang on for just a couple more minutes for another sure. question or two? Sure. Okay. I, I'm just wondering. You've shared a lot of, of of information, a whole lot to digest. I'm wondering, is there maybe a tool or a resource you'd like to recommend for our listeners if they want to learn more?
2: Oh, you know, uh, bookstores are full of unread missions books. Uh-huh. They're full of unread prayer books. Full of unread evangelism books. I mean, people kind of down deep know what to do. What I would like to recommend, if people want a resource, um, I think what I would recommend is Urbana, (laughs) this Christmas season, Urbana. And if they want to go and see resources, they'll get resources coming out of their ears at Urbana in Champlain, Illinois. That's a good step for people to go and spend time there and just see all that's going on around the world. But let me just say that on a personal level, I think a book that I read recently that strengthens my heart for the gospel, not just for now, uh, not just for getting to heaven, but why is the gospel true? What? Why should we be giving the gospel to people? Is it to turn them into Americans or Protestants or evangelicals? No. <laughs> It's because it's the best thing that ever happened to anybody. It, it transforms cultures. It's transformed the world. The gospel has given us all kinds of social networks. It's given us universities. It's given us science. It's given us technology. It's given us so I would like for people to go out and buy the book by Vishal Mangalvadi. That's hard, Vishal Mangalvadi. It's not hard to remember the name of the book. It's hard to remember his name. He's a guy from a Hindu background, from India, who's now a Christian thinker, and he's written a book called The Book That Made Your World. The Book That Made Your World. Christians need to see that the world needs the gospel, because the gospel is transformative in every respect. And I think we have to have more motivation than just to get people to heaven. I really do. I think heaven's a great idea, don't you? Oh yeah, I think seeing Jesus is a great idea. But so many Christians in America have said, "Yeah, well, now I found the Lord. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. Now I'm just going to put it on cruise." That's not what it's about. It's to see that the gospel is changes every aspect of culture and life. It's we need it in America. We need it to get hold of things in America. We need to understand where we came from. People are dying to get to America. Why? Because of the institutions the gospel gave us, the, you know Christianity. This is this is Schaefer. You know Schaefer, Doctor uh-huh. Schaefer. He he wrote. He said this statement. He said this. He says Christianity. Western civilization did not give us Christianity. Christianity has given us Western civilization. Christianity has given us Western civilization. It's not the other way around. We didn't invent it. It made us what we are, and we're losing that at rapid pace. We're losing what made this what we are. It's the gospel that made the West what it is, and we're losing it. I would much rather live in a godless Denmark than in a godless, in a godless India. Yeah. Michael says he came by with Americans for the first time, and they stopped at a little uh, vegetable stand alongside the road. And they got out of the car and they went over and picked up some vegetables. The host family, they put their money in a tin can and got in the car. And Vishal said, "Why? There's no one there to take your money." Says no. Says you could never do that in India. Says why? They would. Would they take your vegetables? No. They would take the entire stand. They would take the money. They would take the vegetables. They would take the entire stand. We don't understand that the reason that there's a certain amount of integrity in North America and the Western world, in Denmark and Sweden and Norway, still is a residue, a residual integrity is because the gospel gave it to us. And if we lose that, if we lose that, it's going to change. I'm sorry, but the next generation doesn't have much to hope for.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, Tony, we are just about out of time. Is there maybe a way that someone could contact you or contact the ministry if they want to know more or get connected with you?
2: Oh sure. You know, uh if they want to contact me personally, I'm at uh Tony Hedrick A C C I. It's Tony H E D R I C K. Not Hendrick, Hedrick, A <laughs> C C I at Gmail.com. And if they want to know about our mission, it's uh adventive, like adventure and inventive. It's adventive, one word, dot C A. It's a Canadian agency. Tony Hedrick A C C I at gmail.com i'll be happy to steer them toward things they can do
0: that's great and for those of you listening this will all be linked up in the show notes which will be at engagingmissions.com slash tony hedrick tony thank you so much this has been a real pleasure i appreciate you sticking on for an extra couple of minutes it's really been meaningful
2: well sorry brian to have it in overdrive but i happen to be at (laughs) 70 years old a pretty passionate old guy
0: (laughs) i appreciate that all right All right, one thing I did want to mention before we go is that next week is Thanksgiving, and so I'm not going to have a regular interview scheduled for that day. One of the things that happened last year and that I see happening in podcasts is that during the holidays, a lot of times we see fewer people listening, which is completely you know completely understood but i want to provide the very best audience that i can for my guests they work hard and they're taking time out of their schedule to connect with me so that they can share their hearts and their ministries and i want to make sure that i'm providing them the very best i can So because of that, we won't have that regular interview. However, I will have something for you. It'll be something that I shared in my church last year, and it'll be just kind of a special thing. You'll get to hear a little bit of my heart, but it won't be that regular interview. And then the week after Thanksgiving, we'll be back to that normal interview.
1: Thanks for listening to The Engaging Mission Show. You can find more great content like this, along with show notes, by visiting engagingmissions.com or by subscribing to the show in iTunes or Stitcher. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. Audio editing was provided by Jeff Butterworth of Sound Paradigm Studio. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back next week.